And I want to invite all those who will remain to please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And, and then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Howard Thurman used to talk about the fact that in life, sometimes our souls get pulled in so many different directions that we need to just stop and be still and quiet for a moment to gather up the scattered pieces of our souls and bring them to God so he can make us a whole and integrated person again. Do you ever feel that way? I would like to do that now. If you'll join me, let's just bow our heads and be still and quiet in the presence of the Lord this morning. If you've got burdens, this is a good time to bring them to Jesus. If you have sins weighing on your conscience, this is a good time to bring them to Jesus. If you're just feeling distracted by the cares of life, just to bring that to Jesus and ask him to give you the grace to have an attentive heart to hear his word this morning.
Our Father in heaven, we come to you so thankful that you're a God who loves us, who cares about us, and who speaks to us. Our desire is that everything we do in this space this morning would bring glory to you. And indeed, we pray that you would make us a people who live lifestyles of worship, so that everything we do all day, every day, would bring glory to you. Lord, we confess that in many ways we've fallen short, but as we just were reminded as we took the Lord's Supper, we we thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers our sin. Pray that you would cleanse us now, refresh us now. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to speak every word you want me to say and none that you don't. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, attentive minds, souls that are filled with trust and humble before you. Lord, bring healing to our bodies where we need it. Let this be a time of refreshing and instruction and equipping that we would all leave here knowing that we have been encountered by the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And John, the Baptist, is a prophet. And our text says he's more than a prophet. He's a special prophet who whose coming was foretold by earlier prophets like Isaiah and Malachi. And John had the special mission of being a forerunner who came before Jesus and prepared people to receive Jesus. John's message was one of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from evil. Bring your hearts back to God because King Jesus is coming. He was a forerunner. He went before. And then when Jesus launched his public ministry, John intentionally stepped back from the limelight. He stepped into a backstage ministry. But there was a period of time in which John the prophet and Jesus the Lord were both ministering at the same time. Luke today is giving us a glimpse of that period. Now, John is not ministering very publicly. In fact, we know from chapter 3 that John is in jail right now. He has been locked up by Herod for speaking God's truth to the world's power in a way that Herod did not like. He's locked in jail. But while he's in jail, his disciples are bringing him reports about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is healing sick people. Jesus is preaching radical things. Jesus has done some very dramatic miracles, and if you'll remember back before Easter, back before Palm Sunday, the last story from Luke's Gospel that we read before this was about Jesus very publicly raising a dead young man back to life. So, the reputation of Jesus is spreading, and as John hears these reports, his heart is getting stirred, but apparently... There are some ways in which Jesus was not quite meeting John's expectations. John had already come saying, there's somebody coming after me who is greater than me. I'm not worthy even to untie his sandals. And he had already pointed people towards Jesus and said, that's that's the one. But sometimes even people of great faith Wrestle with confusion, uncertainty, and doubt. And Luke's gospel today gives us a glimpse into that reality by telling us a story about this little interaction between the disciples of John, 
and Jesus during this time of their over, overlapping lives. I want you just to think for a second about the fact that John is the greatest of the prophets of the Old Covenant. He's a great man of God, and our story is a story about him wrestling with confusion, spiritual uncertainty, and doubt. Jesus is perfect, but John's not perfect. Jesus is all-powerful, but John, great as he was, was prone to spiritual weakness like we are. And I think perhaps we should take comfort. As a matter of fact, maybe we could have a little moment of honesty before we get into the sermon. Are there some saints in here who believe in Jesus, but sometimes you feel like you're really struggling with doubts? You ever feel confused and uncertain in life? Like Abraham, the father of our faith, who wrestled with his doubts. Won't you accept Ishmael as my son? Like John, the greatest prophet of the old covenant, who said, there's one coming after me who's greater than me, and his name is Jesus. And now sometime later, Jesus, is it really you? Or should we wait for another? In our story, we see the great prophet wrestling with doubt and uncertainty like we sometimes do. And we see Jesus, the perfect, all-powerful Lord, coming near to imperfect people with grace, patience, kindness, healing, love. And gentle instruction. Our story begins, as we've said, with some messengers sent from John. You can look again at verse 19. Let's read it. It says, John, two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, Luke knows that Jesus is the Lord. Did you notice that? Verse 19, sent him to, it didn't say send him to Jesus, he says sent him to the Lord. Luke knows that Jesus is the Lord, and Luke is writing to a Christian community who already know that Jesus is the Lord. And since we're here as Christian people gathering to worship, I, I know there's probably people from a variety of spiritual places here today, but if you're somebody who identifies as a Christian, then you know that Jesus is the Lord. So if you believe that, let me hear you say, Jesus is Lord. And as I've already been saying, John knew that too, at some level. He's already been pointing towards Jesus, and yet, Jesus isn't quite fitting into all of his expectations, and he's writing from jail He's probably discouraged. And when we're discouraged, sometimes we get spiritually vulnerable. And he's just, he's just not quite certain. He just wants to be sure. Can you relate to that? He wants to be sure. He's a little confused. So John sends these messengers. And Jesus answers John. Clearly and graciously, though perhaps not in the way that John was expecting. Here's a little lesson for us already, church. A lot of times as Christian believers who trust the Lord, we wrestle with doubts and we feel ashamed of those doubts and we try to suppress them and think if we give voice to all the things we're wrestling with, then that'll mean we're failures and our whole life's going to fall apart. But a better thing to do is what John does, which is just, just bring your doubts to Jesus. Trust him enough to bring your doubts to him. This is not the kind of hard-hearted unbelief 
that the Pharisees and teachers of the law show into this in this story and elsewhere. There is a kind of unbelief which is sinful. It's rebellious. But there's this other thing which we see happening with John. He trusts the Lord, but he's a frail human being wrestling with his doubts and uncertainties. Instead of suppressing those things, which actually tends to give them more power in our lives, he just brings them to Jesus, which tends to weaken their power. And as he brings them to Jesus, Jesus responds, not with judgment and harshness, but with kindness and compassion and love, but maybe not the way that John was looking for. Do you know what I think John wanted Jesus to say? I don't have a proof text to prove this to you. I'm just speculating. But I think John wanted Jesus to say, yes, I'm the one who was to come. He just wanted a really direct answer would be my guess. Jesus answers John clearly, though maybe not quite in the direct way John was expecting. And by the way, if you bring your doubts to Jesus, he may not answer you the way that you wanted to. But just listen to what he does say, okay? And his response, we see, beginning in verse 21, says, In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind... He bestowed sight. Before I keep reading, we just need to pause there for a second. Verse 21 is only one sentence. We can read it in just a few seconds. But I want to pause so that we can imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples of John in this moment. One of the great things about the stories of Scripture is they not only give us God's truth, and appeal to our rational intellect, but they can also capture our imaginations as we visualize what it would have been like. So imagine, you're one of these servants of John, and he sends you as a messenger and says, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who was to come, the Savior, the Lord we've been waiting for, or is there another coming after you that we need to keep waiting? And they get here, and... They're trying to talk to Jesus, but there's crowds of people around him. It's not quite clear if they've already asked the question or not. But either way, Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people. And they're watching him minister to people. We don't know how much time has elapsed. But from the patterns we see in the Gospels, this was probably like a long time. Hours. Maybe a whole day. And John's disciples are watching. And as they watch... People who are blind are coming up, being led by their friends. And Jesus speaks a word or touches them and their eyes are open. And they start dancing for joy, praising God. People are coming up with leprosy, horrible, contagious, scary skin diseases. And Jesus, without fear, reaches out and touches them. He does not become sick, but they're instantly healed before everybody's eyes. People come up who are tormented by evil spirits. And when Jesus commands these demons to leave, they have to go. They submit to the authority of the word of Jesus. And people who were tormented are visibly restored in their right mind, healthy, at peace. All day long it's like this. People are walking up with withered limbs. People are being carried in because they can't walk. Jesus touches, Jesus speaks, and in front of their eyes, for hours, there's power coming from this man. 
And it's not just power, but it's compassionate power that restores life, that heals, unlike any prophet or miracle worker in the history of the world. They're just watching it. And verse 22 says, and he answered them. This is probably like at the end of the day. Here's how I imagine it. They show up early in the morning. John sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or is there another? He says, good question. And then 12 hours later, they've been watching him and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Let's pause there again before we finish the rest of what Jesus says. He's saying to them, be a witness of my actions. Be a witness of my deeds, what I have done. Don't just go tell John what I might say about myself. Tell him what you see and hear me doing. Have you noticed that talk is cheap? All kinds of people say all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Anybody can claim to be anybody. I have met people who tell me that they are the Lord. And I'm pretty sure they were not. But there's all sorts of people that think they're the one. They announce it. So if Jesus says, yep, I'm the Messiah. You got to ask, what does that really prove? But Jesus says, go tell them what you have seen and heard. We could compare a little moment in John chapter 10. You don't have to flip there, but if you want to look it up later, I'll read you a few verses starting verse 24. It says this. So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, my actions reveal my identity. To anybody who has eyes that are open. To anybody who has a heart that wants to know the truth. In John chapter 10, he was rebuking some religious hypocrites and saying, not only have you heard my words, but you've seen me do Miracles of healing and restoration that nobody has ever done before. But you are not convinced because you don't want to be convinced. You don't want me to be the Lord because I will not play on your terms. But notice here, something different is happening. John has a heart that is open to the truth. John wants to know God. John wants to do the will of God. Which means Jesus knows that he's going to hear that the actions of Jesus speak the truth about his identity. He wants to know the truth, but he's just somebody who wrestles with doubt like every believer wrestles with doubt. Now, I want you to get this. Jesus is not just saying that his miracles show his power. That is true. And they show his compassion, but it's more than that. The miracles of Jesus are signs pointing to his identity, not just because they show he can do things that nobody else can do, but because these miracles show that Jesus fulfills the scriptures. That's really what's going on here. And those words are so important. Everybody say fulfills. 
the scriptures. You see, one thing Jesus, the Lord, and John, the prophet, had in common was that they were both men who were devoted to the scriptures. If you study their lives, they're constantly quoting the scriptures. They're constantly alluding to the scriptures. They're constantly living in a way that is shaped by the scriptures, and especially the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah. Psalms and Isaiah is all over the ministries of John and Jesus. And, of course, in this regard, they're great role models to us. If you want to know God, if you want to become a mature disciple of Jesus, like Jesus and John, you need to become a person whose mind and heart is saturated with the words of God found in the Scriptures. That's how John lived. That's how Jesus lived. So Jesus tells the disciples of John to take back a report of what he has been doing. But then he describes his actions in words that they and John will recognize. Look, look at what he says at the end of verse 22 and then end of verse 23. He says this. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You recognize what Jesus is quoting here? John would have recognized it. I'm going to read you a few of the verses he's alluding to here. These are all from the prophet Isaiah. You don't have to flip in your Bible because it takes too long, but if you want to jot down some references, you can go study them in context later. But I'm going to read you a few, if you just want to sit back and listen. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6 says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 28, 28 through 29 says this, In in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So with all those words of Isaiah ringing in your ears, listen again to verse 22. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Friends, if you go study all those passages of Isaiah... In their full context. Read the whole chapter. What you'll see is the prophet Isaiah is saying this. In each of those contexts, from different angles, he's saying, You may be going through some hard times now, people of God, but a day of salvation is coming. The Lord is going to do a new thing. He's going to forgive the sins of his people. He's going to bring renewal to Israel. He's going to draw all nations to himself. He's going to not only overcome the power of evil and sin, but he's going to reverse all the destructive effects of sin on the earth. 
The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will hear. The dead will be raised. Resurrection will come. New creation will come. And it will be the work of the living God. And he's going to do it all through his anointed servant who comes with power and humility and love to do the will of the Lord. That's what Isaiah was saying in all those texts. So Jesus first shows them his power by doing all these miracles. And then he quotes five or six passages from Isaiah. And what he's saying to John is, look, I'm fulfilling every word that the prophets have spoken. Look at me and think about the scriptures. Everything the prophets spoke about the coming Savior, I'm doing it. It's me. I am the Lord and I've come to make all things new. It's important for us to understand that the scriptures show us the truth about Jesus and Jesus shows us the meaning of the scriptures. I'm going to say that again, maybe twice. Because Christians, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. I want you to think about this. It's important for us to understand that the scriptures show us the truth about Jesus and Jesus shows us the meaning of the scriptures. If you want to know Jesus, you need to be a Bible reader. The scriptures tell us the truth about Jesus. And if you read your Bible and you get to some parts that you're trying to figure out what they mean or what you're supposed to get from them or uh, trying to make sense of it, then you need to hear the second half of that statement. Jesus shows us the meaning of the scriptures. We can't know Jesus without the Bible and we can't really understand the Bible rightly without Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And Jesus wants John and his disciples and us to reread our Bibles with him at the center. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. The whole story is pointing forward to him, a compassionate Lord coming with grace and mercy to bring healing and forgiveness, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the grave, conquering death like we celebrated last Sunday, to invite you and to invite all the peoples of the earth to trust in him, to be forgiven, to be born again, and so to be reconciled to God, to live at peace with God, to live at peace with one another, and then to be empowered by his Holy Spirit to be agents of his life and peace in the earth. That's what the whole book's about. Jesus gives John's disciples a very clear and powerful answer, though maybe not the one they were directly looking for. They turn around and go back home, presumably, and then the story shifts gears. And now for the last part of our story, Jesus is talking about John. Who is John? And I don't have time to talk about everything Jesus says here, but I want to point out a few highlights. Because understanding the prophet will help us understand the Lord. I want you to notice first the two rhetorical questions that Jesus asks the crowds about John. Look look at verse 24. It says, when John messengers had gone, so they've left, they've gone back to take the report to John. Now it says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And then here's, here's the rhetorical questions. A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in... Soft clothing, and of course, those are both somewhat humorous rhetorical questions for which the answer is no. What is a reed shaken by the wind? A reed is flimsy. 
And, and when the, wherever the wind blows, the reed bends, which is the exact opposite of John. John was rooted. He was rooted in the word of God. He did not fear what man said. He was a man of truth and conviction who spoke the word of God, even if it was going to cost him his life, as it will. So, John is not a reed shaken in the wind. He's more like an oak of righteousness. What would you go out to see? Somebody dressed in fancy clothes? No, you could go to Herod's palace for that. You don't go to Herod's dungeon for that. He's not a man dressed in fancy clothes. John wore clothes made from camel skin. This brother ate locusts out in the desert. He wasn't fancy. No filters. John was real. He was authentic. And then notice Jesus goes on to see, what did you go out to say? What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, and more than a prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi. If you didn't know it, the end of the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament are a prophecy predicting the coming of John the Baptist, the last great prophet of the Old Covenant, who would get us ready for Jesus. Jesus quotes or alludes to Malachi. And then, in verse 28, Jesus makes some bold statements. Look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's a serious statement. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's like everybody. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. And then here's another bold statement. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Some of you may have a, a better theory than me about what Jesus means by this, but I think what he means is, is actually pretty simple. What does he mean when he says, among those born of women, there's none greater than John? I think what he's saying is simple. John is the greatest servant of the Lord to walk the face of the earth from the time of creation to the time of Jesus. Why? Because he has the greatest ministry. What John is here to do is way bigger than what Abraham did. It's way bigger than what Moses did. It's way bigger than even what Elijah did. John came to prepare the way for Jesus. That's what makes John great. I don't think he necessarily means that he's more virtuous. Maybe he was that too. But John's greatness, I actually think, is all about Jesus. What does it mean he's, he's the greatest ever? Nobody from the foundation of the world till this moment has had a greater ministry, a greater purpose from God than John the Baptist because John was a voice in the wilderness saying, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, get ready for Jesus. Y'all say, it's all about Jesus. And then I think the second statement in verse 28 is saying this, now Jesus is doing something brand new. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. Because he is the king. He's making a new covenant. Which is better, than, which the is old better than the old covenant. And Jesus is saying that the least citizen of the kingdom he is establishing is greater than the greatest prophet of the old covenant. Why? Is it because we are more virtuous? I don't know about y'all, but I don't think I'm more virtuous than John. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, John was the greatest before because he had the greatest ministry, which was to be the final climactic prophet, getting everybody ready for Jesus. And he's saying the least citizen of 
The kingdom of heaven that Christ has established is greater. Why? Because we're forgiven. Because we're adopted into the family of God. Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we've been crucified with Christ and raised with Him and seated on a throne at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. And we've been empowered to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God and ministers of a new and greater covenant. In other words, Jesus is saying John was the greatest, but John's great greatness was all about Jesus. And now the least of you is greater than John, but your greatness is all about Jesus, too. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. I think we need to think more often about how awesome it is to be alive after Jesus came. So far in 2023, I've been slowly reading through. The first few books of the Bible. And there's some great stories there. And I mean, I've thought a lot of times it would be cool to see the Red Sea be parted. You've thought that too, haven't you? I would like to see that. I want to be there, I want to be there at that moment when Miriam takes her little tambourine and all the women of Israel start dancing around. There's a lot of moments that would have been awesome. But Jesus is saying the privilege you have... For intimacy with God and for spiritually significant work on the earth is far greater than what Moses had. Far greater than what Abraham had. Far greater than what Ruth or Esther had. Far greater than what David had. Because Jesus has come and the Spirit of God has come. It's awesome to be alive now. In the era of Jesus Christ. In verses 29 and 30, Luke tells us that some people were happy to hear Jesus speak so highly of John, and other people got mad about it. This is predictable. The people who like John like it when Jesus likes John, right? The people that didn't like John don't like it. They don't like Jesus, and they don't like it when Jesus talks well about John. And we, we know who the categories are. The tax collectors, the crowds, the notorious sinners love John. And now they're drawn towards Jesus. Jesus does not say that what they're doing is okay. He doesn't. Both John and Jesus have messages that begin with the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both of them speak with authority. They're not coddling anybody and telling you your life is okay. But they're coming with power and authority and holiness and love. And they're inviting broken people to be reconciled to God by grace. Saying, if you'll turn to the Lord, he will embrace you. And so those who know that they are broken are moved and they're drawn to the light. The people that get mad are mostly religious leaders who are very proud. And Jesus says this little thing. He he compares them to children. And at the end of our text, he says this little thing about children who are griping and complaining. And and just look at it. What are the children griping about? They're griping because you don't do what we want. You don't do things our way. If we want everything to be done our way, we won't like John and we won't like Jesus. doesn't matter how religious you are. It's actually mostly the religious people that are missing it throughout the Gospels. The religious people who've got all the rules and say, we're following the rules right and you need to do it our way. God keeps showing up, not doing it their way. And so they start saying, actually, you must be the devil and we must need to kill you. But there's an arrogance of heart there. 
The people who are drawn to him are people who know that they are broken. John and Jesus had different personalities. They had different methods. Some aspects of their message overlap, but some of them were quite different. But Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all of her children. In other words, God's wisdom is at work through John the prophet, and God's wisdom is incarnate in Jesus the Lord. And anyone whose heart is open to the healing mercy of God will recognize God's wisdom in both of them. Now I want to end by asking you a question. And the question is this, who do you most identify with in this story? I'll say again what we said at the beginning. One of the great things about the stories of Scripture is that they don't just appeal to our rational intellect. They appeal to our imaginations. I don't mean that they are pretend. I mean that we can imagine what it would be like to be there, there, right? And And sometimes it can be very spiritually healthy just to imagine ourselves in the story and see what we see. Think, how would we feel in that moment? Which person in the story do you identify with? I suspect that there's probably a lot of us in here who kind of resonate with John and his disciples. I think many of you really are genuinely committed to the Lord Jesus, but also at times you wrestle with doubts and confusion and you get discouraged. And and when you're dealing with doubts and confusion and discouragement, the devil likes to come whispering, doesn't he? If you were a real person of faith, you wouldn't have doubts, says the devil. That's not me. If you tweet that out of context, it's going to confuse people, okay? But the devil likes to tell you, because you wrestle with doubts, you're not a real believer, you're not a real follower. He likes to heap condemnation and accusation. That's not how Jesus talks. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying like doubts and confusion and discouragement are a good thing, okay? I'm looking forward to a future day that is doubt-free, aren't you? Confusion and discouragement-free. But we have a gracious Lord. And the life of faith includes wrestling with doubts and hard questions and learning to bring them to Jesus and await his answers. Sometimes if we've got to wait 20 or 30 years and die before we get the answer. But we trust him. So if you're here and you identify with that, say, I trust the Lord, but I'm tormented by these doubts. I just want to be sure. I just want to know Then our text gives you clear direction. Just bring those doubts to Jesus. You may get answers. You may not get the ones you're looking for. You may have to wait a long time, but bring them to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at what he does and listen to the scriptures. That's what John said to them. Look at my works. Listen to the scriptures. And as you're looking at Jesus and listening to the scriptures, trust Jesus, the Lord, and don't get too freaked out about your doubts. Do you know what's a great way to take away the power of your doubts? To recognize that they're not that big of a deal. To recognize that everybody wrestles with them. Your doubts aren't that big of a deal. Do you know what's a big deal? Jesus. He's a big deal. Jesus loves you. He's calling you to himself. He wants you to be with him. 
He's used to the disciples who are with him wrestling with doubts. I love it. Right after his resurrection, right before the Great Commission, they are looking at the resurrected Lord. And the text says, and they worshipped him and some doubted. They're literally staring at him. I look forward to the day when we're done with doubts and confusion. But in the meantime, he's a gracious and patient Lord. Perhaps some of us in here, though, if we're honest, are coming more like the hard-hearted Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, none of us wants to say this. If you're at small group and everybody is going around sharing which part of the story do you identify with, it's kind of cool to be like, I'm like John the Baptist. I'm super devout, but I'm kind of tormented at the same time. But nobody wants to be like, I'm a lot like those Pharisees, right? But if we're honest, sometimes we deal with the other kind of doubt. What's going on with the other kind of doubt? It's when we put ourselves in the position of evaluating Jesus and standing in judgment and deciding if he passes the test. When C.S. Lewis was on his spiritual journey towards becoming a Christian, um, he got shook one day because one of the most skeptical, atheistic professor friends that he had had been reading the New Testament and he assumed that it was going to be a bunch of myth and legend stuff and then found that it was very historical and he, talking to C.S. Lewis, said, just made an offhand statement after reading the Gospels. He said, rum thing, it seems like it happened once. Which we don't talk that way, they were in England. But he's like, whoa, it seems like this happened. And when C.S. Lewis heard this, he's like, what? And he started reading the Gospels in Greek, because he, he was C.S. Lewis like that. But as he started reading them through, he said, my plan was to evaluate Jesus. And the whole time I kept finding that he was evaluating me. That was true for the Pharisees, but they never got the picture. And if, if you're in a place where you're standing in judgment on Jesus, trying to see if he lives up to your values, I mean, it might be good to ask yourself where those values came from and critically evaluate that. But more importantly, here's what I want to say. Humble yourself. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just pray for the Lord to have mercy on you. Pray that he'll open your eyes to see the beauty of his wisdom instead of standing in judgment on it. And here's the thing. If you pray sincerely. Open my eyes, Lord, if it's true, I want to know it. Open my eyes to see the beauty of your wisdom. That prayer indicates that he has already said yes to the prayer. He's already started opening your eyes. That's a good place to be. Jesus loves you too. He loves you too. If you don't think he loves Pharisees, just type Saul of Tarsus into Google later on. See what you find out. Jesus loves you. He is calling you to himself. He wants you to be with him too. Finally, there's probably some of us in here who identify more with the tax collectors and sinners because you come here today knowing that you are very broken. And you're sensing that the kingdom of God is coming near and there's a mixture of fear and excitement. And what I want to say to you is the Gospels make it clear that the kingdom of God is especially near to you. God has so much grace for you. If you come here and just knowing I'm broken, my life is a mess, I can't get it together. Jesus came exactly for you. He came to die on the cross for your sins so there would be no more punishment left. To rise again. And your sins are not too big for Jesus. You say, you haven't heard what I did. Listen, to be a pastor is to be 
a person to whom everybody tells the worst stuff that they did. Okay? So I'm talking about all kinds of lying and cheating and adultery and murder and assault and you would not believe the things. And what I have found experientially is what the Bible tells to be true is that there are no sins too big for the blood of Jesus. There are no sins too big for the blood of Jesus. If you'll just bring your sins to him. I love what Pastor Ever said to us last week. Don't get your sins sorted out and then come to Jesus. Bring the sins to Jesus. Bring the sins to Jesus. Confess them to him. He loves you too. He's calling you to himself. He wants you to be with him. As we get ready to respond to the words through singing, I want to invite you to stand. And we're just going to take a moment to pray. Whichever characters in this story you most identify with, I just want to give you a moment to talk to Jesus about it. Bring him your doubts. Bring him your sin. Bring him your wounds. Ask him to open your heart and meet you where you are. And he will do that. And then I'm going to say a prayer for you in a moment before we sing. These last few weeks I've been loving a little Jonathan McReynolds song. Some of y'all probably know that says, What I'm lacking you are full of. Where I'm broken you are whole. What I'm doubting, you are sure of. So I'll trust the lover of my soul. And Father, we just want to bring to you now all of our doubts, all of our weakness, all of our sin, all of our fear, all of our shame. Say we can't fix it, but we trust Jesus, our Lord, the all-sufficient Savior. I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit on this congregation, those in the sanctuary, those in the chapel, that right now, we would experience the truth of your word that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You're a God of truth. You're a God of healing. You're a God of order. You're a God of clarity. And we just ask you to minister to us in our places of weakness. As we pour out our hearts to you and we pray that what you're doing in our hearts here would uh, kindle a flame in us that we would be able to carry out to our communities that your healing would flow through us. In Jesus' name.